Believers, Lord, that we do have unity. Help us to keep that unity today as I teach on a subject that has divided the church in the past. Not this church, but the church at large. Um, bless everyone here. Let them have a spirit that would hear and understand what I am giving today, Lord, and give me the right words to say what your word tells us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today's lesson is women in the kingdom. How silent are they? <laughs> uh, so what is the role of the kingdom, of the women in the kingdom of God? Uh, this lesson, as usual in my introductions about how I decided to do this lesson, recently I was um, presented with two opposing views from podcasts I listened to on one was a Bible translation podcast, and it said the, um, that all evangelical translations are complementarian. That is the view that women are limited in support to supporting roles in the church and actually in society at large. Could it be true that all accurate translations support this interpretation? Another podcast that has a woman co-host mentioned that she... Uh, in social media had a backlash because she posted that she was preaching for the first time at her new church. Is that how Christians should act to a woman preaching or teaching um, with nasty posts responding to her um, celebration of using her gifts? I have avoided this topic for many years. I remember teaching over there in the old sanctuary and literally bumping up to this subject and go, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> so, uh, but when I said that, my, teacher, my, my daughters were only in grade school or middle school. Now they're in college. How can I support them without having an answer um, about this question? So, I've already mentioned complementarianism. Um, there are two views. Um, uh, opposing views of how women should be um, in church. They are complementarianism and egalitarianism. Nice, long words. These theological positions go beyond just women's roles in the kingdom, though, but include their role in marriage, the family, and society. I will be focusing only on the role of women in church. So first, complementarianism. And I found a website that had some nice definitions, so we have them here for you. Complementarianism is the theological view that although men and women are created equal, in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other via different roles and responsibilities, as manifested in marriage, family life, religious, religious leadership, and elsewhere. And both of these are from theopedia.com. So if you don't like the definitions... Um, let them know. Um, two passages seem to be the core of the complementarian view. 1 Corinthians 14, 33b through 35, and 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. So, 1 Corinthians 14. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the, in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And then 1 Timothy, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 
Um, these Bibles. Wow. That did quiet the room. <laughs> um, these are Bible. Okay. There are, I'm using the ESV today. Um, there are Bible translations that are nominally complementarian, like the uh, podcaster said. The English Standard Version and the Holcomb Standard Christian Standard Version actually conform to a Colorado Spring Guideline of 1997. This guideline described how different Greek and Hebrew words could be um, translated when they were referring to gender. Most other modern evangelical translations are actually considered gender accurate, conforming to the changes in English language on the male and female gender to re remain accurate to the reader. If you um, have any doubts about English changing, just think about the two Star Trek shows, the, the original series and The Next Generation. In the 60s, it was no man, where no man has gone before is their tagline. And then they updated it in the 80s to where no one has gone before. So no, man is no longer considered in general society to be inclusive of women. And we have to use things like humanity, mankind, human beings, etc. Um, so there are other um, translations that appear to be complementarian, but it's probably just because of their um, literalness. And um, like the Christian Standard Bible, the, the update to the Holcomb Standard Bible no longer mentions the guidelines in its um, uh, preface. And when the New American Standard Bible considered the most literal translation of English translations, um, when they translated, updated their translation in 2020, they actually said that they were going for a gender accurate translation, not a um, literal translation for gender. So let's look at egalitarianism now. This is the opposing view to complementarianism, and it is the theological view that not only are people, all people equal before God in personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and society. It is sometimes referred to as biblical equality. Egalitarianism gets its theological anchor from Galatians 3, 27 through 28, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, or passages since it's two verses. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been put on, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is, neither, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So egalitarians believe that women can fulfill any role in the church. Now labels can be a nice shorthand when discussing positions, but the real world is usually more complicated than that, particularly when we are given only two choices. Um, and especially when both choices define women's role in society as a whole. Forced into one camp, I am an egalitarian. Galatians 3, 27 28 through 28 is one of my favorite passages, but I'll be using the ESV today, which is a complementarian um, Bible, to show that I'm being as even-handed as possible. Now that I've laid the foundation of the opposing views, I'm not going to mention them again for the remainder of this lesson as much as possible. Um, so what is the role of women in the kingdom of God? 
Can women's role in the Bible can condense to one of these two positions that are opposing each other? What are the biblical examples of women working for God's will here on earth? Well, one of the first ways we can see that women worked in the kingdom of the God is that they were messengers of the gospel. At the beginning of Jesus' life, at his resurrection, and in the early church, they all brought forth the gospel. Anna prophesied about Jesus at his dedication when he was only a month old in Luke 2, 36-38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So the speaking of him was the baby Jesus. So we have this woman in advanced years who spends all of her time in the temple, a very devout woman, and when she sees Jesus and is told by Simeon that he is the, the Christ, the Messiah, it would be in Aramaic or Hebrew, so the Messiah, she then pro- tells about the prophecies of the Messiah. Then there are the women at Jesus' tomb. All four Gospels mention this because it's such an important um, part of the story of the Gospel. In the patriarchal society of the first century, Jews and Romans, women were considered not reliable witnesses, but God commanded them to be messengers of the most important event in human history. Were they to be silent when they had this good news to share? So let's start out with Matthew's account. It is Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was lightning, like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And fear of him, as for fear, and fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he had risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So the Marys were commanded twice, first by the angel, and then by Jesus, to go and present this gospel to the disciples, this good news about Jesus' resurrection. Mark's version of this meeting is a little more condensed. It's in Mark 16, verses 9 through 11. Now when he rose... When he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary, Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She sent and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Again, again, the um, belief that women cannot be reliable witnesses. Um, 
And then Luke, the learned doctor and historian, adds to the list of women and gives the eleven's reaction in a little more detail. In Matthew, or sorry, Luke 24, 1 through 12, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Johanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women, and with them were who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So Luke gives us the attitude of the society. The women's account seemed to be an idle tale to them. And in the next passage, when Luke is recalling the road to Emmaus, where two um, disciples run into Jesus and do not recognize him, they were also amazed by the tale the women gave. And then lastly, in John's account, Mag Mary Magdalene sees both the empty tomb and the resur resurrected Jesus. In John 20, First with one, verses 1 through 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have been laid him. And then continuing on to verse, with verse, at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, sitting there with the body of Jesus, where the body of Jesus had lain. And one of them, one at the head and one at the feet, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where he, you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and, they, and that he said these things to her. So, again, Mary Magdalene is telling the story that she's been commanded to tell to the disciples that she has seen the risen Jesus. Now, a hint that that was not how things were done in the first century in the Mediterranean regions is um, Paul's writing to the Corinthians in uh, chapter 15, where he glosses over the details of the women seeing Jesus first. For I have delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, 
though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now, Cephas is another name for Peter. So Paul's not mentioning that the women saw Jesus first at all. Was this because he didn't want to add an element of disbelief already to an incredible tale? It would have only taken a few words. He appeared first to, the women, to some women followers, then to Cephas. Again, women are not considered trustworthy witnesses in that society. If you're going to court and had plenty of witnesses to support your case, your lawyer probably would not use a child on the witness stand and certainly wouldn't use them first. Unfortunately, women were considered not much better than children in that day and age. But God gave them the privilege of being the first witnesses and the first messengers of Jesus' resurrection because the gospel is for all mankind. Another um, messenger of the gospel is Phoebe. She um, is a servant of the church of Caesarea, and she brought the she most likely brought the, the epistle of Romans to the Romans. In Romans 16, 1 and 2, when Paul's writing his final words of greeting to the church, I commend you to you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Caesarea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So she brought the Bible, the the epistle, to the church in Rome. So most likely, if she could read, she would have been the one to read it aloud. And she certainly would have answered questions that they may have had um, about the letter. And the word that's translated servant in, the, um, in most translations, actually, but also especially in this uh, English Standard Version, is dikonos, which is the word that we get deacon from. The footnote from the English Standard Version, even says, or deaconess. So the ESV's conservative view when it comes to gender issues, it still has to acknowledge that Phoebe could be a deacon. If she was a patron to many, including Paul, she would have had the respect of the church and certainly could have been a deacon. It is unlikely that Phoebe was silent in her role as deacon or even as patron. And then we have the gifts of the Spirit. Let's look at... Um, the, the description of the gifts of the Spirit in Corinthians 12. First with verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Again, that brothers is, should be brothers and sisters if we were being um, gender accurate. But the ESV has its rules to follow. And it's probably in the footnote, but I missed it to this on, on, on this handout. Um, now there are, and continuing on verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to the one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretations of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, there's no mention of gender in here. 
And God apportions to each of us gifts as he will. Are women not to use these gifts? When Paul states they are given for the common good, it is interesting that some of the denominations that are the most strongly complementarian are also the ones that believe in cessationism, which is the belief that charismatic gifts are no longer present in the church. Let's look at Joel's prophecy on the gifts of the Spirit. It's in Joel 2, 28 and 29. And here we'll even see that a gift was declared to be a gift that women would have. And it, came to pa- and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servant, in those days I will pour out my spirit. So it says, pour out my spirit on all flesh. That means all humanity there. And it defines that both sons and daughters shall prophesy. So there is a gift that is declared to be a gift of the spirit that women will do, and that is prophecy. So let's look at the women prophetesses in the Bible. And this quote is so important that um, Peter uses uh, this quote in Joel to talk about the Holy Spirit in his um, sermon on the day of Pentecost. So one of the first women in chronological order, or canological order, I guess it would be, um, in the Bible that is declared to be a prophetess, is Miriam. That is Moses' sister, or Aaron's sister. Um, and in Exodus 15, verses 20 through 21, we have, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So Miriam wasn't only silent here. She got a female praise team together. <laughs> Celebrating that they, God has delivered them from, the, um, from Pharaoh and his chariots as they crossed the Red Sea. And then let's look at Deborah, a prophetess and a judge in Judges 4 through 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Raham and Bethel in the country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for her judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam, from Kedesh Natali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said to him, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell, sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. This is Judges 4, verses 4 through 10. So Deborah is one of the most godly of Israel's judges in the book of Judges. She judges his disputes, appoints a general to lead a revolt. And when Barak says he will not lead without her, she prophesies that the enemy leader will be killed by another woman. 
The rest of the chapter details the battle, the death of the enemy general by the woman, and the overall success of the war. And then chapter 15 continues on with the song of Deborah and Barak, praising God for his deliverance. Deborah had God-given authority that Barak and the people recognized, in that she judged, she prophesied, and she actually appointed Barak to be the general. And then we also have Huldah, and this is in 2 Kings 22, 13 through 20, and also in 2 Chronicles 34, 22 through 28. Kings and Chronicles tell the same story um, in general, just from different points of view because they were written at different times. So I'm just going to go with the 2 Chronicles account. And in this account, it's talking about the revival Josiah had when the scrolls of the law were found because his forefathers ignored both the law and the temple and were busy worshiping other gods. And so he started to reform. And he asked um, his, his um, servants to go and inquire of the Lord. And how did they inquire of the Lord? They went and saw the prophetess. So in verse 22, So Hilkah and those who the king had sent went to Hula, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, son of Harash, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And she spoke, and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back the word to the king. So Huldah prophesies the destruction is going to come because of Judah's sin. But it will not come during Josiah's reign because of his efforts to follow the law. Again, a woman is recognized with the gift of prophecy. Another example of a prophetess is Anna, but I highlighted her in the previous section on the messengers of the gospel, so I won't repeat that. And finally, we have the daughters of Philip. Philip is the evangelist. He's one of my biblical heroes. He um, started out as just a servant, serving tables, and then became the first person to, recorded to, preach outside of Jerusalem. He preached to the Samaritans, and then to the Ethiopian eunuch on the way in the um, wilderness. And he had four daughters that prophesied. We see this in Acts 21, 8 through 9. On the next day we departed, this is Paul and his party, and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So, Paul and his party stayed in this house where he knew there was daughters that prophesied. You would think that if 
he was against all women teaching or talk, speaking in church, that there would have been a discussion about this. But he just stays there and um, is there for many days. Teaching is another gift that the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit that are examples of women having in the, in the New Testament. The first example is not teaching, but being taught by Jesus. This is Mary, the sister of Martha, and of Lazarus, her brother. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So here, Mary is commended for listening to Jesus and his teaching. Not to go in the kitchen and ask Lazarus later what Jesus taught, which is what um, Paul's teaching to Timothy would say. The next example is the wife of a husband and wife team, teaching team, Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. And we're first introduced to them in Acts 18, verses 1 through 3. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So I imagine they were making tents, and Paul was talking to them, and he talked about the gospel. You know, he's the um, one who's most famous for preaching the gospel in the New Testament. And then they, they travel together to Ephesus. But from there, Paul travels on to Caesarea. And when in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila hear Apollos preaching. And this is verse 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, were, who through grace had believed, for he, was powerful, he, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. So, together, Priscilla and Aquila explained the gospel more fully to Apollos. And he was, because of that teaching, he was able to show the scriptures that Christ was Jesus in a synagogue in Achaia. So, now that we've seen that both, that biblically there are women teachers and there are women um, prophetesses in the Bible, let's look at Paul's concerns. First of all, we have to remember that epistles are reading another's mail. When we read the epistles, we are reading someone else's mail and only getting one side of the conversation. For example, if I text my wife, did you get food for Buckminster? Who is Buckminster? Is it a house guest with dietary restrictions, like a vegan or a low-salt diet? 
Baby Buckminster is a baby we're going to be babysitting, and we need to get some baby food. Is Buckminster a pet? Well, then what kind? A goldfish? A hamster? Cat or dog? Well, different species of pet distinctly need different foods. Now, some of you know, do know that I have a dog, an Australian shepherd named Bucky. So you would have guessed, correctly guessed that Buckminster is a nickname for him. But no one outside my family knows why I call him Buckminster. Does anyone have any guesses? Well, I'll tell you. I was told by my wife that I had to tell you if I was going to go this far. <laughs> I say Bucky is named after Buckminster Fuller, the mid-20th century architect and inventor. Uh, he didn't invent it, but he is the um, a major component of the proponent of the geodesic dome. And while the rest of my family say Bucky is named after Captain America's best friend, Bucky Barnes, I am going to stick with the fact that he's named after Buckminster Fuller. So, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, or to Tim Timothy, have assumed understandings or meanings that we outsiders have trouble seeing. We may have to dig into the culture to get an understanding we would miss from a surface reading. What are the causes of Paul's commands from, for women to be silent? Let's first look at 1 Corinthians 14. One clue is the heading for this section in modern Bible translations. The NIV and the, and the ESV both title this section Orderly Worship, and the New English translation, the Net Bible, uses Church Order. So Paul was trying to bring peace to a disorderly church. Could it be that women with their newfound freedom in Christ may have been adding to the confusion or doing something considered rude by that culture. It cannot mean an absolute prohibition, prohibition because of the last two verses in that section, which are verses 39 and 40. So, my brothers and sisters, eagerly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Again, the ESV is showing its conservative gender views by having sisters in the footnote, which is why I put it in brackets. Paul, at the end of the section, commands the readers not to forbid speaking in tongues and a universally available gift, and be eager to prophesy a gift that we already see has been given to a number of, people, number of women in the Bible. Our sisters, sister believers, could not do either if they are to remain silent in church. And then let's look at Paul's letter to Timothy. And this is... 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Paul wrote to this letter to Timothy while he was in Ephesus. You can see this in 1 Timothy 1, 3. Ephesus was a port city in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. It had a large temple to Artemis the goddess that the Romans called Diana. This temple was so large, it was considered one of the modern, the, sorry, not modern, the seven wonders of the ancient world. Women led worship in that temple because it was a temple to a goddess. Could it be that new believers to Christianity were bringing their attitudes of female leadership with them without having the understanding of the faith to lead? This prohibition would then be temporary until they were matured. 
And if this ban was universal, and a societal and chronological ban, then Paul is contradicting both the Old Testament and the Gospels that show women in leadership, prophesying, and worshiping. He personally knew female teachers and prophetesses, and as recorded in Acts, he did not say for them to stop. This is why I believe they are not universal, but are for conditions that are not recorded. And then finally, let's get to the application. God gives everyone, male and female, gifts to be used for the common good in the church. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So we all should, men and women, use these gifts of the spirit granted to us by God. We should all actively serve in the kingdom of God in an orderly manner so that the service manifests itself in the common good for the church. If anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to answer them uh, before the worship service starts. Otherwise, God bless.